exceptional performance. The Leaders Podcast. This podcast is an introduction to the 10 essential elements to achieve an exceptional performance culture. Episode by episode, we break down five elements in planning, the what, and five elements in leadership, the how, by having experts share their experience, knowledge, and expertise in realizing these essential elements. In our first five episodes, the what, or the planning elements, were explored. They can be revisited at ProductiveLeadership.com. The how, or the leadership elements, are explored in our last five episodes. Episode 6, we take a look at leading performance, accountability, and communication. Next, in Episode 7, we explore culture, first by defining the desired operating culture, then in Episode 8, by measuring the current culture, Episode 9, leading the desired culture, and finally, in Episode 10, embedding the desired culture, the last podcast in this series. Hi, I'm Eric, host of Exceptional Performance. And I'm sitting down with Dr. David Jameson. Hi, David. Hi, Eric. As chief scientist and head of advanced analytics, David's career with Enveronics Research Group follows his experience as an academic and published author in the field of social and human values. His current research, however, is in corporate culture and exceptional performance organizations. Today, David explains the essentials of element eight, measuring the current culture. So, David, in our last episode, we were discussing with Rob the measurement of culture. In your opinion, how often should organizations measure their operating culture? Well, Eric, that depends. Uh, If you're in a stable static market segment, examining your culture strategy less often is less risky than if you're participating in a very dynamic market category. However, some categories, you know, appear to be constant, but in fact can be very dynamic just below the surface. Uh, Let me give you an example from a couple of different categories. Back in the 1990s, coaches in minor hockey reported almost overnight that players as young as seven, eight, eight years old were switching from their traditional wooden hockey sticks, which back then cost only about $20 each, to, competence, to composite sticks with high-technology materials that cost around $300 each. So what happened? How did a sleepy, stable market segment like hockey sticks, been around for 100 years, suddenly shift so dramatically in such a short amount of time? And why did the vast majority of existing manufacturers like North Star, Christian, and Sherwood completely miss the boat, while other emerging industry players like Bauer and, and uh, Easton suddenly jumped into the category and dominated the chair? Well, one major reason was the shift in attitudes of parents to more than ever provide their, ho- their hockey-playing sons and daughters with nothing but the best technology. Even players in lower-level house leagues were showing up with sticks which were now as expensive as a full-season registration fees. So this was unanticipated, unexpected. Happened quickly. If you're not measuring your culture, if you're not examining your strategy in a dynamic marketplace like that, you can be bitten. Surprisingly, it sounds like the market for hockey equipment has something in common with the life sciences industry. I mean, in the last 10 years, you've seen a shift almost similar to what you're explaining. By that, I mean it may not be a conservative market, as some might think. Well, that's right, Eric. Since the turn of the 21st century, really, any company participating in uh, life science in North America has noted some significant stakeholder changes uh, in what is perceived as one of the more conservative market segments, really. For example, think about patients, like every other category in consumption, but perhaps most emphatically uh, in this category, patient attitudes have shifted away from a kind of a, a, a doctor, please tell me what to do, very passive stance to a much more uh, participative, active, 
uh, information-seeking kind of uh, approach. People want to be the co-authors of their own health and their own health plan nowadays. So nowadays, physicians are often surprised when they find that most of their patients are showing up with uh, an incredible amount of online uh, resourced uh, information about their health, and they're much more engaged, thanks in part to the Internet. On the other hand, physicians, let's take them. The majority of physicians used to be male, European descendants, baby boomers. But now, thanks to significant shifts in immigration trends and medical school enrollment, the majority of graduating physicians in most medical disciplines are more likely to be female, non-European, and Generation X as opposed to boomers. These elemental shifts have resulted in fundamental shifts in the way physicians make medical decisions and the way they engage their patients and the way they interact with their staff, peers, and vendors. Or take the government. The role of government in the approval and regulation and purchase of medical technologies like drugs, medical devices, equipment, biotechnology, and the rest has changed in, in very many multiple ways. Looking just at the buying decision elements, much more of a role for insurance organizations and much more regulation of the industry-physician relationship are now very evident. So if you're leading an organization or department in the life science category over the past few years and you haven't revisited your approach to your operating culture, you may be at odds with the trending wisdom. Think of what Jack Welch said. If the rate of change on the outside exceeds the rate of change on the inside, the end is near. So how can you measure what culture currently exists in an organization and then compare it to the desired operating culture? Well, Erica, I think it's all about understanding what your most important stakeholders are experiencing. Uh, really think of it as a chain, starting with your customers. If you want to know what your customers are experiencing, look no further than the behavior of your frontline employees. If you want to know what your frontline employees are experiencing, look no further than the behavior of your management team. And last, up the chain, if you want to know what your managers are experiencing, look no further than the behavior of your executive team. So it's obvious that the root of any organizational culture stems from the behavior of its executive leaders. So, David, can you explain the techniques for measuring at the executive level? Sure, Eric. There's, uh, there's really three broad categories that we look at. Uh, first is organizational values assessment tools, which are broader and look at, at the whole organization. And uh, the listeners might be a little bit surprised that I said that because we just uh, said that really you need to look at the uh, upper strata of the, of the company. And a lot of studies show that about 70% of the of culture really is, gets generated there. But where the, you know, the talk is actually walked is down lower in the organization. So if you assess it there, you'll see whether it's really manifesting itself all the way down. So the first one is this uh, more broader organizational values assessment level. The second are 360-degree feedback assessment tools. Uh, typically used with the senior uh, team managers. And the third are one-on-one -on -one, one -on -one interviews with the direct reports and others with frequent interactions with the executive team members. So, David, can you go into those three elements a little more in depth? Absolutely. Uh, and the three are used in various combinations, but let's look at them uh, one at a time. First, let's look at the organizational values assessment tools. Uh, you know, now that you've decided what to do and how to do it, what should you measure and how should you measure it? Uh, now, we basically uh, advise people that they should measure what they need to measure at the moment they need to measure it uh, in order to get really the best value for the use of that uh, employee time. Um, data provides for teachable moments, but receptivity to what is being uh, shown in the measured data, that is what it says, or the insights that you get out of it, and what it implies, which is 
mainly what the actions are that you're going to need to take as a result of it, you know, has to be judged by, on its appropriateness and timeliness along this culture change journey. Once those decisions are made, a little dollop of data can go a long way to raising awareness and the need for change and for increasing engagement and buy-in for the change and also to provide continuous motivation, momentum, and commitment to the change. So let's go back to our decisions about what and how. Uh, you need, need to ask yourself questions like this. Do you first need to generate self-awareness among senior leaders? Or do you need to take a baseline of the entire organization's values and experiences uh, that they have in living in the culture? Do you need a simple self-assessment of values for the senior leaders to advance that change agenda? Or would a values or, or behavior-based 360 tool be in order? Maybe that's the kind of instrument you need to bring light and the right kind of data to the table to investigate the conditions for change either in an individual or in a, in a whole department. You know, have values already been well chosen, so now it's time to develop organizationally appropriate uh, measures of behavior to assess a baseline of how well the organization and its business units are actually walking the talk and being held accountable. So at this point, you, if you've answered some of these questions, you need, now need to ask yourself, well, which tools am I going to bring in to do the measurement? Unfortunately, there's a little bit of a bewildering array of uh, values, products, and systems on the market. So what I'd like you to do is spend a few moments kind of uh, almost taking you through a consumer's guide to what you should be looking for if you're going to commission somebody to come in and, and do this kind of uh, measurement. Uh, it's something that uh, is something that people sometimes overlook is the, is the need to figure out what kind of tool will really be understood uh, and easily embraced by your organization. The members of your organization are going to be continuously assessed and they need to be continually uh, supported in the journey. So you need to be working with something that they really understand. So generally, we're kind of agnostic with regard to which of the commercially available systems and, and products is most useful for any particular organization until we figured out, uh, you know, the answers to some of the questions that I was listing uh, above. What direction does the management really want to take it in? It's important to note that all of the available systems really uh, flow from Maslow's hierarchy of needs, a system that I'm sure almost everyone in the business community uh, has heard about at one time or another. I think my high school-aged kids now hear it in uh, as low as grade 8. So it's something that's pretty much uh, well understood and, and talked about. But the problem with Maslow is that he came up with his uh, theory in the 1950s uh, as kind of the third pillar of the psychology uh, movement, and, and it was based around the idea of self-actualization. Uh, he stopped at a high level of uh, human needs that he described self-actualization, but in Western democracies, most of us now have got most of the bottom needs, the so-called deficit needs, covered. And even Maslow admitted toward the end of his life that he hadn't done a good, good enough job articulating out what the self-actualization needs could be. So once self-interest is kind of taken care of at the bottom part of this pyramid and that people are secure, and even if organizations are secure financially and their processes are working um, adequately and so forth, there then comes kind of a transformational opportunity where people really look at themselves, they look at the organization and they say, well, how do we get better? Uh, how do we now take on consciously and planfully the kind of goals and objectives that we need to move forward? And what is the culture that is needed to support that? And at this point, you really have a choice to make it conscious and to uh, choose the kind of culture that you want to live. 
So we draw on five different systems, actually, in our own work. Um, and what I'm going to do is very briefly uh, describe them now. I'm not going to explain them in too much detail because uh, I don't want to divert us from our main goals uh, throughout these podcast series, which is uh, describing how these measurements should be used to bring around desired changes to the culture and uh, how you then uh, ensure that you really get those uh, cultural changes embedded and consistently being enacted. So the, the, f- the first of the five is uh, our own proprietary environic social and corporate values measures. Uh, we've been measuring values for more than 30 years in, the Canada, in Canada and the U.S. and have links to uh, organizations in about 50 countries around the world that uh, practice the science and, um, uh, of measuring human values and workplace values. And uh, what Enverox has developed is essentially a, a system to uh, perceptually map some of our, our values so that we can show where a, a, an organization currently is and where it could get to if it chooses to. Uh, essentially, we're asking people, what is your current identity in terms of the values expression? Where is it that you want to go? What kind of identity do you want to grow into? And obviously, that's an identity that has to be both uh, chosen and valued, but also one that will be strategically important to make that company's success uh, financially sustainable in the years to come. Um, It's a fairly straightforward uh, battery of questions that people assess. We uh, measure about 100 different values in the system, and we can uh, help clients using it to uh, really move their, their organizations forward. A second one is called spiral dynamics and a sub, uh, subcategory of it called spiral dynamics integral. And this is based on theoretical work founded by uh, psychologist Claire Graves back in the 1970s, uh, popularized by a couple of other psychologists, Don Beck and Chris Cowan. And recently they've been uh, uh, also working with the American philosopher Ken Wilber, who has devised his own integral psychology. Uh, you may have heard a uh, reference to his book called The Theory of Everything. Uh, Ken is a little bit ambitious. Anyway, uh, it's a very useful hybrid. Spiral Dynamics uh, talks about a level of progression which can be used to describe individuals, organizations, or even whole societies that cycles back and forth between the sort of I, me, mine values and the collective we, us, our values and goes ever upward in a kind of open-ended spiral. Every time you solve problems, those results, uh, you know, the outcomes of, of those solutions will create new unforeseeable and unforeseen problems, which then values have to be more or less invented in order to, uh, to meet the challenge of. So it's a, a very dynamic system, and it can be very useful. It's fairly complex. We don't always recommend it for every organization. Again, we choose a system that... The organization's membership is is going to be able to really understand and to use to great advantage. The third system is the Barrett Values uh, system invented by uh, Richard Barrett, who's a former HR director of the World Bank, and he has a an institute in uh, North Carolina called the Barrett Values Center. Uh, in about the 1990s, uh, Richard came up with this system, and he'd been working in corporate environments for many years. And it has a couple of concerns that are are really core to living uh, out a a very productive and exceptional performance environment. Um, one of them is the the notion of living one's authentic self. So the idea here is that 
people uh, have values that they bring to the workplace. And to the extent that they can come be themselves and really live authentically with their coworkers around them, uh, they're going to find that a soul-enhancing kind of experience as opposed to the kind of soul-destroying uh, environment that uh, Rob was speaking about in the, in the last uh, podcast. So their ideal workplace is one where they can feel as though they're uh, being themselves by, while at the same time contributing to high performance and, ex in fact, exceptional performance in their, in their culture. So in the Barrett system, you're asked three questions. One, you know, what are your personal values? Secondly, uh, what do you see the values uh, every day around you being as you go to work each day? What's the water you're swimming in? And then the last thing people are asked is what their ideal uh, set of values would be for a workplace that was uh, highly uh, exceptional in terms of uh, its performance and its support for people. And based on a comparative analysis of those three sets of answers, uh, the system generates a number of different possibilities for the way you might choose or rechoose values. Uh, and then uh, actually enact them and embed them in your culture. And like all these systems, uh, what you really need to do is then go back and continuously monitor this to make sure that you're driving all of the forces of ent entropy out of the system and that you're enhancing the positive values. The entropic forces are the things, of course, that weigh the organization down, uh, lead to uh, you know, disillusionment among employees, lead to disorder uh, and ultimately could lead to the destruction and the bankruptcy of the company if, if they go unchecked and unattended. So uh, this system uh, has uh, some, some real strengths to it and it provides a number of different reports both at the individual team and even group level uh, which uh, you know people can use to improve their cultural practice. The fourth it, one that I'll talk about is the Hall-Tona Inventory of, of Values. Now, the Hall-Tona is named after the two inventors of the system, Brian Hall and Benjamin uh, Tona, who came out with this in the late uh, 1980s, although they've been working on it for about 10 years. Uh, it's an eight-level system that divides values into ends and means values, which is somewhat of a tradition in, uh, in culture-type res research. What are the instrumental means by which we achieve goals? And then having achieved those goals, what are the next uh, things that can be reached instrumentally based on those goals? So as you move forward, you create a, a values chain. Uh, you design this. You do it consciously uh, toward an outcome that you've decided upon ahead of time. And it's a very effective way of uh, actually articulating what values need to be addressed in order to move you from uh, A to B. It's a, a fairly complicated system. It, it attempts to incorporate a number of different psychological theories, but it does have the strength we find if this is an appropriate uh, thing that the organization is uh, looking at, that is the individual development of, of individuals, to be able to planfully uh, create these links. Uh, so we often use this in concert with uh, uh, individual coaching. Now, the fifth tool is the Schwartz Values uh, Survey. This is, a, again, a long-standing survey developed by an academic. Uh, it's the most theoretically uh, based uh, of the ones we re reviewed, that, uh, which is not a kind of Maslowian offshoot. Uh, it's basically an answer to the question, well, people invent values and they invent culture in order to uh, really satisfy three things. One, protect themselves from 
the environment. So that's more like the Maslowian lower uh, physiological needs satisfaction. But we also need to deal with other people. We need to deal with other people at two levels. One is the level of the kinship group or the small group. And then eventually also uh, at the level of organizations which are competitively uh, engaged with one another. So this has kind of an evolutionary biology feel to it. The uh, resulting values chart is what's called a circumplex, which is a, a circular diagram uh, where the values next to one another uh, on the wheel as you go around it are more highly related to one another than values across the way. So it's a very telegraphic, useful, interesting uh, kind of tool, uh, but still not uh, that widely used in the commercial space. So we're not using it that much, but we think that there will be potential to, uh, to use it more. So in our judgment, those are the five best. There are many others available in the academic literature, many others available uh, out there in the uh, organizational field of practitioners. We think these are the three that have a, a robust utility. And each of the systems we recommend has been beyond being developed. Uh, it, it provides one or more uh, various sub-tools, such as the individual's values assessment, to really uh, underpin personal development and training, uh, 360 assessment tools, which are values-based more than behavior-based, but which can be combined with behavior-based tools, uh, individual-based assessment of the culture to establish that consensus view of the organization's current operating culture, both its positive and its negative influences. Uh, and this can be done company-wide or within business teams or divisions or units, that sort of thing. Um, and, and some other tools as well, such as small group values culture assessment, and even an assessment to see whether the leadership team is in, in fact prepared to make fundamental values change management, which they have to lead by modeling uh, their own changes through to the organization. Uh, one of the areas that we think is in development, uh, sorry, is in need of development in all of these is a more comprehensive methodology for understanding what behaviors you're going to assess to mark the evidence of change of culture. Uh, this is something that's uh, there's no real standardized way to do yet, and we do it with a lot of um, uh, focused uh, consulting. Uh, and what we do is charge people with the, the task of going away and really telling us how in this culture you're going to articulate that value through behavior. Uh, we ask people to go away and come back with an individual development plan. We ask team leaders to go to go away and come back with a uh, a planned uh, approach to how their team as a, a unit is going to be behaving differently. So we we ask them what is the evidence we're going to need to see uh, for us to be convinced that there has been a behavior based change in the way that you're functioning and in a way that supports culture that is the culture that you've chosen. Okay, so th that's kind of a, a, a bit of a, a quick run through and a little bit of a consumer's guide on the main systems that are out there that we would recommend using. So can you give us an example of how these tools have been applied? Uh, sure, Eric. Um, one example that I can think of is uh, one uh, client that we're working with right now. Uh, this is somebody in a, an industry that um, is a very dynamic industry. It didn't used to be. They've been uh, snuck up on. Some destructive technologies have uh, come up out of nowhere to, uh, to threaten them. They're finding their market share eroding quickly, and as a result, morale and, and uh, in fact, their financial performance is beginning to decline. They're experiencing a lot of uh, employee turnover and so forth. So 
uh, what we'll be doing there is is really, again, according to the principle of just in time and just the appropriate measures, we're going we're going to, with a strategy where we use a couple of the different tools at different times. They have one division in particular where they're having an executive issue, so we'll be going in there and using the 360 tool. Uh, we're looking also to get eventually a baseline of what the organization is looking like. Uh, one of the reasons that we're uh, doing that afterwards is that sometimes it's better to do a, uh, a qualitative piece followed by a quantitative, other times a quantitative fi- followed by a qualitative. Uh, we almost always recommend some qualitative follow a quantitative assessment because you need uh, the help of the people who you surveyed to actually lend interpretation to the, uh, the objective data that you've got on the, ta- on the table. Uh, the, the data will be, recl- uh, re- will be replicable and is statistically robust, but this doesn't mean that uh, we as consultants understand all of the ins and outs of the, of the company. In this particular case, um, they need a baseline so that they can, we can come back next year having rechosen their values uh, to make them more competitive. Their exceptional performance culture has to react to this dynamic environment. They need to shore up uh, key management positions. So we'll be doing uh, an, an assessment from a variety of different perspectives at a variety of different levels in the organization, but it's really not a one-size-fits-all. We'll use what's appropriate uh, to get the most value for their uh, culture change uh, energies and efforts. So it seems like there's a lot of science behind this, David. Well, absolutely there is, uh, but like with anything, uh, the great science is no good unless you uh, employ it, deploy it, uh, you know, in a very... A timely and wise manner. So we, we really listen to uh, what is needed. It's just like a carpenter with a toolkit. You're, you know, you, you have to gauge the situation, figure out which is the exact tool you need. When you've got the right tool in your tool bag, the job is a whole lot easier, but you've still got to use the right one. And so what we tend to do is to go in, really gauge the situation, use a, a mix of common sense and best practices around what is the appropriate tool, how is it selected, um, how are we going to measure it, at what levels of the organization, how broad or narrow does it have to be, and so forth, uh, in order to get the, uh, the kinds of outcomes that we need to really help our clients move the organization forward culturally. Thanks, David. That's it for Episode 8 of Exceptional Performance. Tune in to our next show, where I'll be sitting down once again with Rob Sagan to discuss the point at which we move from measuring to leading the desired culture. Until then, thanks on behalf of myself, David, and the team working to bring you this podcast. We'll see you next time.